This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, and, you know, to be amongst you all and make some new friends and see some old ones. Um, so, what we're talking about today, spiritual formation in the Bible. Uh, this is going to be kind of freeform. You might have already noticed. I don't have any lecture notes. I don't have any lecture notes. I'm just going to make this up as we go. But I did make up this fun thing to look at while I'm jabbering. So, um, and that'll give us some trajectory. Okay. But the two things I want to talk about are what's in the title. Um, spiritual formation. What do we mean when we talk about that? Okay. What is spiritual formation? What are the categories we use to talk about it? What are the categories we've inherited by to talk about it? That kind of thing. And the Bible and how those... What do we do when we read the Bible? <laughs> um, what are the categories we use when we do that? Uh, what's the connection between these two? And ultimately, what I'm trying to get to is um, how the Bible is actually, you know, the old school language for it would be a means of grace of spiritual formation. That's how the Spirit molds us into the image of Christ. How does the, what is the Bible doing? How does it do that? How would we become good readers of the Bible if we recognize that's what it's doing? That sort of thing. So, those are the basic ideas we're trying to get at. Um, yeah. Aha! Oh, spiritual formation. What is spiritual formation? I don't do PowerPoints because I don't live in the 80s. Okay. Because um, they're horrible. I can't look at them. Um, so, what is spiritual formation? Really simply, spiritual formation is just models of how Christians grow in their spiritual lives. Like, how do we mature as Christians? And within that, we have a couple of questions that we're trying to answer, or sometimes assuming answers to. One is always going to be, really, again, how do people grow? Like, what are the sources of growth in the Christian life? What are the things we see in other people's lives that actually help them grow? Uh, implied in that is also a question of, what is Christian maturity? Like, what is Christian growth? Like, where are we trying to get to? Right? Um, and then the other things are what practices uh, do we, do, can we do and adopt, right, uh, that would promote that kind of growth? <clears throat> and there's a whole bunch of different answers we could give, right? Uh, and a whole bunch of different answers the church has given at different times. Prayer, worship. For the majority of church history, helping the poor has always been considered an essential of spiritual formation. We don't really think of it that way. But, or, I mean, we're at Labrie, gardening, um, picking weeds. Uh, is that part of spiritual formation? That's why you pick weeds, actually. Um, <clears throat> so, the other side of this is, is thinking about biblical interpretation and what we're doing when we read the Bible uh, and how 
what expectations we have. The way we have this field of theological study called hermeneutics, which is really just trying to be self-conscious about what we're doing when we're reading the Bible, right? Uh, in a lot of ways, biblical questions about hermeneutics and biblical interpretation are really questions about like what questions are we actually bringing? Like, what are our expectations? What do we expect to find? What are we looking for? And what questions do we use to kind of gain those things? Okay. Um, <clears throat> now, most of us have been sometimes formally trained, usually informally trained, in some basic modes of reading the Bible. And we can do these, most of us have kind of learned these by osmosis, and sometimes we switch between them without thinking about them, you know. Uh, but most of us begin with a kind of what, what I would just call reading theologically, which is reading a text and trying to uh, understand or draw out a theological doctrine. like So, you know, a lot of us have learned, you read this text with the question of, what does this text teach us about God? Or what does this text teach us about sin or salvation or Christ or any of those things, right? That's reading theologically, trying to answer theological questions, all right? Uh, other modes are very similar, reading historically. This is the primary job of people in my field, uh, Biblical scholars are trained in what is a kind of strange subspecies of history and historiography. Okay, so using text as a window into ancient history, but also reading text in the context of their ancient history. Uh, but that's another thing we can do: history of Israel, historical Jesus, you know, those sorts of things. Uh, reading ethically is another thing that we do. Of uh, and often, you know, we think of this in terms of: does this text have an ethical principle, or does it have a direct command, or a thing we're supposed to draw out of it, you know, implications for Christian life, or those sorts of things. Uh, and then the last one I would put up here that's sort of a normal mode for us is uh, reading devotionally. <coughs> uh, reading, you know, uh, usually in the personal, solitary, prayerful way, uh, as a means of connection with God, uh, or connecting to self, or some combination of those two. Okay? Now, I'm going to say some things about this here in a minute, but I'll give you a tiny little picture that will tell you how I feel about these four things. <laughs> that is the picture that summarizes my inner, inner, inner child uh, when we talk about these four things. Um, uh... These aren't the worst things you could do with the Bible, but like I, uh, <laughs> um, what we're going to see is like these are these are ways of reading the Bible. I'll just say two things really quickly about it. One, 100% a product of modernism. No one before the modern period ever thought of reading the Bible this way, and it seems totally obvious to us that this is what we do. Um, <clears throat> two. It isn't actually understanding what the Bible is. It's a fundamental misunderstanding about what the Bible is and what it's doing. The Bible is never here to teach us theology. Is it going to teach us theology? Yeah, of course. It's going to do a bunch of that stuff. But no biblical writer ever wrote a text with, like, I want to make sure this person has all the right theological ideas. 
Now, as important as those ideas can be, that's never the end goal. End goal has to do with who is who are these people that I'm writing to and how am I shaping them in their life, right? And that is why uh, I beat my head against a wall when people do this. So, uh, let's keep going here. Now, really quickly, uh, just a tiny little philosophy lesson in Kant. Uh, as sort of the foundation of the way in which we think of the modern world and how it gave us categories to think in. Um, what you have in the modern period, and we're all on the other side of this, and this, this is going to, this is just the air we breathe and what seems normal. Even in a postmodern era, all of this is still the, how we operate. But, Daniel Kant is famous for writing these, what are the three critiques critique of pure reason, critique of practical reason, and what he called the critique of judgment, which is about aesthetics. Um, <clears throat> and so, and in these, he talks about critique of pure reason is about anything we would associate with rationality. Uh, and then he would kind of split that into two categories of, like, real pure reason is what he would call a priori. It's like the things I directly apprehend. Okay? Uh, experiential or... A uh, posteriori reason is things that come through experience and conclusions you draw about how things work based on experience. Practical reason has to do with ethics. How do we answer ethical questions? Uh, judgment has to do with, again, <coughs> let's get lost on when judgment is supposed to have an E in it. I don't think it does. <laughs> anyway, uh, aesthetics. Uh, technical footnote. This whole region of aesthetics, uh, a few hundred years after Kant and Romanticism, is going to get hijacked by and turned into something of irrational emotion. Is going to be all that aesthetics gets defined by. It's the only way Romanticism could wedge its way into the system without destroying the whole thing. <laughs> so this area is going to become things we typically associate with emotions. All right. Now, what is actually unique in Kant is this. Kant is not the first person to talk about, like, we reason things this way, and we think about experience, and we ask ethical questions, and we have emotional responses to things. And kind of talking about human personhood in those categories of, this is part of my internal experience, it feels like this, and part of it is this, and part of it is that. Uh, what Kant, what's unique in Kant is this. These things... These four things actually turn into completely separate and independent things that don't speak to each other. They become four spheres of our humanity that all have a different operating system and can't communicate. And so they work according to their own rules and they exist in their own spheres. And so what that means is uh, I... I I cannot actually say that there are necessary connections between any of those. I can't jump between them. Because this is true, I have to live this way. It can never be true. Like, you, you don't make those jumps. And this is where we have these kind of deep separations that we experience between theology and ethics, or emotions, and rationality, or, well, you know, kind of have this very splintered, set-off, these things exist in their own world and don't really communicate way of approaching things. And that is, and this is the important thing to understand about Kant, is like it's not 
the ideas that he taught. It's he. It's what he gave us was a framework of how to think. It's not like what he said we should think. It's how we think. And everybody in the last 300 years, including all of us in this room, has been deeply shaped by this kind of splintering, right? Um, <clears throat> what we're going to talk about in a second is like the Bible doesn't understand it at all. <laughs> and that's why in the Bible you do the truth. Like the truth is not something you like just apprehend in your rationality. Like it's a thing that has to do with what you love. The thing you do, the thing you're committed to, what your will does, and all like is all integrated. But this is a way in which we've kind of been splintered, right? Rationality has one sphere, emotions have another, ethics is another thing, uh, and they all kind of operate in their own systems, and they don't they don't integrate, they don't connect, right? I had a student, I remember when I was, you know, when I worked in the three in England, uh, we had a student who came to us. She was uh, from Cairo, grew up in a Muslim family in a Muslim community. One of these, I don't like, you know, this sounds kind of a little sensationalistic sometimes, but she became a Christian through Jesus coming to her in her dreams. That's how she became a Christian, and Jesus revealed herself to her. She had to leave Cairo and leave her family because she would have been murdered by her family if they knew she was a Christian. And so she ended up with us in Liberty. Um, fascinating woman. Hoda was her name. Um, but one of the things that was really interesting was we would sit around a lunch table and have discussions, and everybody else at the lunch table is kind of like the students who were here, uh, young 20s, Americans and Brits. Um, and... Everybody else at the table would say, yeah, I believe in this thing, but I'm not really sure I want to do it. You can convince me that this is true, but like, I'm not sure I'm going to commit myself to it. <clears throat> and how did it would just be like, I don't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> like she had, that was a completely alien idea to her. She couldn't understand how any, like just even the mechanics of that idea was just, it made no sense. It was like, no, no, this would, like, to believe in it is to do it. She was coming from a world that's much more integrated, right? We live in a world that's much more splintered, okay? Um, how else do we talk about this? So, again, the four separated forms of the self, rationality, Direct intuition by experience, ethics, aesthetics, and emotions um, correspond to reading theologically, reading historically, reading ethically, and reading devotionally. Now you know why I hate these categories. Uh, <laughs> because they are, you know, you can read in this mode, you can read in this mode, you can read in this mode, you can read in this mode. And again, you could actually pull helpful things out of the Bible. Uh, but the problem is, is that they don't cross over. They don't talk to one another. They exist in independent spheres. I'll tell you a little, like, this is, this is a thing that's only, if you've had enough professors, you know every once in a while a professor tells a joke that's only funny to him. Like, it's kind of one of those, like, academics do this all the time. So one of my jokes that I pull with other academics is I tell them I'm a New Testament ethicist. 
which is not funny to anybody, uh, especially in this room. Um, but uh, the only reason I say that is because there's no such thing. <laughs> I'm just kind of, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, like, prod the man kind of person. Um, you know, so, uh, but, like, ethics is not part of my field at all. People who study the Bible never study ethics. I know that sounds really weird. You're kind of like, I remember having, I have to tell the story. Uh, one of my friends who was doing a PhD with me in Cambridge, uh, and this is a guy who was from Australia. He'd been in, like, missions ministry for 20 years. Uh, we were talking about the work we were doing. We, we met together regularly to kind of read stuff and then get the feedback and stuff like this. And this guy said to me, still a dear friend of mine, said to me, uh, I'm really interested in what you're doing, and it feels like it really talks about the text that you're studying, but why are you interested in ethics? Hmm. Like, literally, you know, I'm like, I read the Bible, I mean, what am I supposed to say? Um, (laughs) But it's so, like, it's just, nobody does that. You know, these kind of, again, these sorts of categories are things that affect us at different levels. Right? Once you move up the food chain in the academic world, they become airtight. We have other ways in which they affect everybody at different levels, right? But like people in my field, people who study the Bible for a living, biblical scholars, are trained to do one thing, and that is to tell you what the text meant 2,000 years ago. Not what the text means now, not what the text means for the Christian life. Know what the text means, like it's for us or the church, or like, like none of those questions. Those all of those questions are forbidden in my field. It's just weird, and you're you know, like, what? Uh, like you know, these are people who read the Bible for a living, and unfortunately, they're the same people who train all the pastors who preach, and you've heard your whole life. Okay, and so, <clears throat> so again, pastors know. Uh, I need to land the plane here, and I can't just talk about what the text meant 2,000 years ago. So they have to find a way to do that, but they were never taught how to do that by biblical scholars, right? And so this is part of why these things get all splintered off, and and that ends up affecting how we are trained to read the Bible in categories that get splintered off. And I'm asking this particular question, and actually only this one, and not related to others. Does that make a little sense? Any questions yes. there? I need to explain anything more other than that? Okay, good. Uh, modern spiritual formation. Um, so there's a thing out there that's been around for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, 25 years, called the spiritual formation movement. Um, <clears throat> that's one of the forms of what we think of in terms of spiritual formation. The church is, uh, every church everywhere is always doing spiritual formation of some kind. Whether it's, th- it's thought about it or not, it is. It's forming us as Christians in some way through all kinds of liturgical practices, the way we read the Bible, all, you know, preaching, soup kitchen, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> We're just forming God's people in some way. Uh, but there are two dominant models. The one is what most of us have grown up with, is what I would call a traditional model, where the, the kind of the way you grow in the Christian life is you learn a bunch of doctrines and you learn a bunch of rules. Right? 
Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yes. <laughs> That's how I was brought up. And so, um, you know, you learn doctrines and rules. And if you keep learning doctrine and rules, then you're just going to grow. Right? Like, that's how growth works. It's a whole, and again, built into that is an idea of like, oh, that's how people grow. That's Christian maturity. Grow in this. And this is the process. Yeah, if if human beings were thinking willing machines, this would really work work really well. Uh, But Libri also would not exist because, like, people who ask real questions are going to be like, this doesn't sound human. (laughs) And I'm not a thinking willing machine. And just learning doctrines of rules is not actually making me grow. Um, Actually, this is really just a form of stoic behaviorism. Uh, One of the titles that gets thrown around for it is uh, this big fat thing of deistic therapeutic moralism. That's actually a pretty good description of most of the evangelical church. Uh, uh, this sort of like, you learn a bunch of ideas and you learn rules and you act a certain way. Learn the doctrines, become a good person, all that sort of stuff, right? Um, and, yeah, in my experience... Anybody who's over 30 has, has gotten to the point where it's kind of like, this is not doing anything. <laughs> like I, like it, there's a certain point, maybe early in your Christian life, where that helped. And like, this was, you actually do need to learn a bunch of ideas. Uh, but like, in reality, it's, I'm not really growing. Right? Uh, and what is normally referred to by most folks today as kind of spiritual formation, or the spiritual formation movement, or something like that, is really trying to find an antidote to that sort of this kind of moralistic way of doing things. Um, and it's usually, like I said, uh, well, there you go, spiritual formation. Uh, and again, it's trying to adopt certain devotional, liturgical practices, uh, traditional uh, devotional practices from the history of the church, okay? Uh, along with a kind of heavy emphasis on kind of psychological reintegration, right? Um, now, there's some really good things about this, and some things that I, I'm also going to say are, I think I find a little problematic. Uh, I had to choose between this one and this one. I would definitely choose this one. Um, <clears throat> but there's also, again, all, some of those lines from before also are going to impose themselves. And so I've spent a lot of time talking to people in spiritual formation movement over the last decade, and almost all of them are convinced that spiritual formation does not include moral formation. Why? Because spiritual formation has to do with our bottom category from Kant, ethics and psychological, I mean, their emotional and psychological integration and experience. And ethics is a totally different animal, right? If you have, I mean, all I'm going to say is, like, if you read the Bible for five minutes, you're going to know spiritual formation and moral formation are the same thing. <laughs> it's like you, you can't actually separate them. Uh, but we have categories that are automatically going to kind of separate those two things. Right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Splinter itself. So here's just kind of putting a bunch of these categories together. Of... <clears throat> uh, simplified this down to three. Ethics, reason, emotions... Uh, sorry, reason, ethics, and emotions. I learn doctrines, right? Uh, or I learn rules. That's the traditional way I learn doctrines and rules. And that's what, how I'm going to grow. 
Um, you know, where spiritual formation is actually going to focus more on, again, our internal world and our experience of God uh, and our connection to Him, right? Primarily through emotional practice, devotional practices. But this is also, here's one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is like everybody's hermeneutic of how you read the Bible actually is a product of how you think formation works. So if you think people grow by teaching them doctrine and rules, then you're going to read the Bible theologically. What does this text teach us about God? What's the doctrine here? And is there an ethical principle I can take from the text? You ever heard a sermon like that? I heard a bunch. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, again, it shapes how we end up reading the Bible. We're going to read the Bible for theology and ethical principles. Uh, and I'll, uh, a lot of what happens in the spiritual formation movement is going to take a totally different approach to the Bible. Uh, in general, kind of comes under the this old terminology of lectio divina, which is a it's a meditative, prayerful way of reading scripture. Okay, but most folks in the spiritual formation movement, this is their idea of like, well, we don't want to do that with the Bible because <laughs> we don't think this is actually how people grow, uh, and this is. So we're going to use the Bible in this way. And again, it turns into... It's not something deeply wrong and destructive, like Lectio, um, but it's also, it's also a very limited thing in terms of, again, it's reading in a devotional way that is sees the goal primarily in terms of my own psychological integration in my connection to God. It's kind of those two poles. But that's kind of the... Because that's what spiritual formation is, that's the way the Bible's going to get used. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Start to see some of the connections here? That's the primary thing I'm trying to get across today, is kind of to, to see some of the connections of how we group all these things together. Um, <clears throat> so, hermeneutics, or strategies for reading the Bible, is actually guided by the model of spiritual formation that we have. If you think people grow a certain way, then we're going to read the Bible a certain way. Right? Both uh, of these different ways of approaches are determined by the modernist splintering of the self. Okay. Now, I would like to at least begin to propose something a little different. Um, but that's going to begin with a, a reintegration of understanding who we are based what we call Christian anthropology. What is a human person? Right. Uh, in terms of intellectual, moral, and spiritual integration. Okay. The primary way the Bible is going to refer to this is always going to be in the language of the heart. Okay. Um, this is especially true of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, but you're going to see this kind of thing happening in the New Testament as well. And you're going to see that what we typically think of as like, we have these phrases, head knowledge versus heart knowledge, right? Intellectual versus emotional. Do you hear how that's like PC versus Mac? Like it's like two different OS, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Like these are two different worlds that don't talk to each other, right? And they totally operate in their own spheres. Like that's what I mean by a splintered self, Right? Whereas the Bible's understanding is actually, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not primarily talking about the emotional experience. 
It is. That's included. But the heart means it combines all of the ideas of the intellect, the will, moral intuition, emotions, all of those things. Um, I can't remember which ones I've included here. Emotions, which we associate with the heart. Intellect. The heart reasons. Right? And even what you're going to see in the New Testament is some adoption of this heart language. In Greek, that's cardia, right? Cardiac, right? Uh, but then you're going to have other categories of mind and body and all these different things. And what you're actually going to see in the New Testament is all of these categories are constantly getting blurred. You're not going to have, like, this is a discrete thing. That's just referring to the intellect, you know. <laughs> Nothing like that. Um, <clears throat> you know. Plenty of people are going to see that because we're going to impose that. But like the Bible is not going to operate that way. Um, so it understands the self in terms of this integrated center that the, the primary biblical language is always going to be the heart. Okay? And the heart is uh, the tool of moral discernment as well as the tool of the will that chooses to do things. It also is not going to see, this is another one we get it to, in the modernist tradition, emotions turn into something irrational. Uh, that's never true in the Bible or in the ancient tradi- any ancient tradition. <laughs> the emotions are another form of rationality. Emotions are statements of value. I would make a distinction, most people would make a distinction between emotion and feelings. Feelings are like the things I feel every that well, ninety percent of it has to do with how much sleep I got and what I had for breakfast. Okay, like I'm, I'm up and down. I'm just, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, those sorts of things. But emotions are much like you know deeper things of grief, joy, sadness, anger. You know that actually are always connected to moral judgments. This was wrong. Or this was amazing. Right, so this is the sense in which the this whole cat this category of the heart is this reasoning, judging, feeling center. Right, it's a really interesting. Uh, <clears throat> uh, I just had my students read this old thing by C.S. Lewis, "The Abolition of Man." So a lot of you have read that, um, and. The, Lewis has this really fascinating phrase where he says, um, what is it? The head governs the belly through the chest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Classic Lewis of like taking a simple metaphor and summarizing 2,000 years of moral psychology. Like, I mean, <laughs> since Plato. And he kind of gives you this thing like it just fell off a napkin, you know, like, it just, <laughs> obviously, uh, you know, uh, but this is his point, is, like, the head knows what to do, the belly, corrupted desires, isn't going to do that, and his point is, the head's never going to beat the belly, it's not going to happen, knowing the right thing to do, and this is what I tell my students, I'm just kind of like, how many times have you been told this? Well, if you know the right thing to do, and you just keep telling yourself the right thing to do, you're going to do the right thing. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, that's a, the, 
wake up. I mean, like, do you live in the real world? Um, have you seen children? Like, have you had children? Uh, or look in the mirror. I mean, like, I mean, we don't, it's, I mean, people don't operate that way. We're not thinking willing machines, right? And so this is Lewis's point. The heart actually has to have its affections tuned to what is good to do the thing that I know is the right thing to do. And he said, knowing the right thing to do is completely useless unless I've actually trained the chest, the heart. And this is the his whole chapter of what he calls men, men without chests. Right? And it's an essay about education. He says, the purpose of education is to instill just sentiments in students that they love the right things. That's the purpose of education. I wish a lot of the institutions would recognize that thought. There's not a lot of American grade schools that recognize that's what education's for, so, but, <laughs> but uh, I think 100% right. Um, but that's the point. In a minute, what I'm going to tell you is that's actually the purpose of the Bible and why the whole Bible was written. So uh, we'll, we'll get there in a second. Um, but <clears throat> first we have to begin in this place. The integration, the heart, is this, in the Bible, it's an integrated self that does all of these different things. It's not just about feelings and emotions. It's about like making moral judgments and moral intuition and reasoning. All of that stuff. You'll see the heart talked about in that way. Right? Uh, it also, this is one thing I, I find still startling, but incredibly amazing and comforting. <laughs> the Bible has an amazingly realistic moral psychology of how people are infinitely complex. And not just like thinking, like you just tell them the right thing to do and they're going to go do that. Like there's a whole bunch of reasons, really complex reasons about why people live the way that they live. And those things are the heart. Like they're, and this is why everyone experiences like, yeah, I know all these categories, and I know the right <laughs> theology, and I know the right thing to do. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about in Romans seven, but I don't do it. And what do I do? Paul says, I do the things I hate. <coughs> Where does that come from? Well, real spiritual formation is the thing that's actually going to connect to the heart where that comes from. Right? Uh, so, spiritual formation. Uh, I would simply define it as a re-education of the affections in, in line with the, the, this is Augustine's phrase, the order of Morris, ordered affections, ordered loves. And it's a simple idea of like, there are a semi-infinite number of goods in the world including God himself, <laughs> that you can seek and love and desire, and that you actually should have an appropriate love and affection for. Now, the, the tradition, in some ways, connected to, and starting with Jesus, is seek first the kingdom of God. Now, what's really, really important to understand in what Jesus says there is this. He never, didn't say seek only. What we hear when we seek first the kingdom of God, spiritual stuff is good, everything else is bad. That's a totally pagan idea. Actually, Paul calls it a doctrine of demons. <laughs> okay, like it's the worst thing Paul ever says about it. 
Um, <clears throat> what does Jesus say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else comes after. Right? So this is a whole Christian tradition that tells us part of the ordering of our affections and the retraining of our affections is actually understanding what things are most important and what is the what. And this is in the Presbyterian tradition. We've got the Westminster Confession. First question. What's the chief end of man? Yeah, it's exactly the same question. What's first? What's your first devotion? And if you get that one right, it integrates all the other ones. And this is why we have a whole tradition that says sin is disordered affections. I still remember, you know, uh, one of my seminary professors, Jerem Bars, who was a worker at the Brie for a long time, I still remember the day in class when he said, totally dead serious, the devil has no good music. And that's his whole point. Like, the devil can never make any good music. The devil can only corrupt something that's good. And this is why, and so this is this whole tradition of sin is wanting something that's good, but wanting it in the wrong way. It's not wanting something, right? Disordered affection, inappropriate, right? Coveting in the Bible. Don't covet your neighbor's cow and wife and whatever. You know, that was like, it's inappropriate desire. Why? Because it's not yours, dummy. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's not that you want a cow. It's that you want the cow that's not yours, and you don't have a right to it, you know? Um, so it's a re-education of affections, of the heart. It, what that means is actually coming to understand in my heart where my affections lie, what things I actually love and seek, what things I, what things do I want more than other things. Right? Uh, and that takes a lot of work to actually kind of wrestle with. We have stuff on paper. This is the most important thing. I should do this. When, you know, and a lot of us could pass the theology exam. You know, give detailed theological answers to things. You know, uh, but the theology that we live from and the theology of the heart is way more important, especially in the Bible. God's not too impressed with the whole passing the theology exam thing. <laughs> That's who we are as people. It actually matters. Um, and so, <clears throat> spiritual formation is primarily, again, it's not, and again, this is the rebuilding of the heart in the things that it desires and the things that it understands and all of the all of those thinking, judging, willing, desire, emotion, intellect, all of that stuff. That's what affections traditionally means in the history of the church of talking about this. Um, so, re-education of the affections. Uh, and that re-education, I would say, is ordered by, meaning it sets its goal towards love of God and love of neighbor. Like, that's, that's the primary thing of the fruit of the ordering of the affections, right? What's really interesting is if you read Augustine, this is what Augustine is going to say is, the, there's one measure of whether you're a good reader of the Bible. <coughs> and that is this. And he says this really fascinating statement. If you think you have understood the scriptures and you have not grown in the twin love of God and neighbor, then you haven't understood a thing. And his point is that is what the scripture is 
designed to produce in us. He's not saying that's what it says on every page. But he is saying it's designed to mold us into people that are shaped around love for God and love for neighbor. And that the Bible actually is to free us from the idols that keep us from becoming people like that. Right? Does that make a little bit of sense? So, three things I would say here. First is going to be uh, meeting idols. Like we all have distortions, disordered affections. Idols that we have attached ourselves to for safety and significance. Uh, and this is part of the spiritual work. A lot of what goes on in a place like Liberty. People actually coming up against, like, I've been taught this whole thing, or I thought I believed all this, but now I'm, why am I doing this? And why do I want that? And, you know, it's actually finding out, like, who we really are on the inside. Uh, and that we are actually people that do have deeply disordered affections. Right? Um, not only disordered affections, by the way. Um, you know, we have actually some very good ones. Uh, but that we do have distortions and idols. Right? Next, I would say, is... Uh, learning to enjoy doing what I know is good and true and beautiful. This is actually, this is the definition throughout church history of this word virtue. The, you know, what we probably call virtue. Virtue is not simply, Aristotle has a whole discussion about this. Virtue is not simply doing the right thing. It's loving doing the right thing. I have deep pleasure in doing what's what I know is right. Again, integration of my whole self. <coughs> Not just a conforming of my will to a set of rules. Like but changing me in terms of the things I want and things I love. And that that actually is a thing that produces action. It's not just an internal reality. It's like it's how I live. Right? And growth in Christian maturity is the kind of reintegration of those things coming closer together. Starting to feel like, oh, like the things I actually believe are starting to coincide with the things I actually love and pursue and do. Right? So it's that sort of integration and enjoying, like, and actually taking joy and pleasure in it as people in God's image. Because God is driven by his joy. Right? Um, and then the last one. The Bible. <laughs> what is the Bible about? The Bible is really actually written just to order our affections. Um, it's not written to teach us theology. This is the biggest mistake that we make. And the biggest mistake all of my students have been trained to do since they were kids as like I'm just supposed to read a text and pull the theology out um, <clears throat> and yeah I was just talking to Ben about this like really really simple basic question okay if you look at the Bible what is what is the most prominent genre form of the Bible anybody Stories. Stories. Narratives. 
historical narrative. What's the second genre? Poetry. Poetry. You ever read a theology book that's poetry? Or a narrative? No, because those two genres suck at teaching theology, right? <laughs> and recognizing that is the thing that we ought to be like, oh, maybe the point of this text is that is not actually that it's trying to teach me a bunch of ideas. Because if that's what they were doing, they would have never chosen narratives and poetry. But narratives and poetry are brilliant genres if the point of what you're doing is actually exposing and realigning people's affections and and directly accessing them and leading them in ways that actually are formative of like this is this is one of the things I love about the Bible is just how often you have it's full of people who are just pissed off at God God why are you, you why did you curse me there are whole psalms written like that When's the last time you read a praise chorus about, like, God, why don't you curse me? Uh, <laughs> you know, this is the point. This is the Psalter. This is forming people in terms of, like, it's really okay. It doesn't necessarily mean God actually cursed you, but it's actually validating people's experience of they feel cursed. And that that's okay. And God's not going to fall over, like, oh, oh my. <laughs> and think we did something wrong. Uh, that's actually training affections. And this is what, you know, when when you're, when we reach points of difficulty and painful things, and we are angry at God, we actually have two choices. One is a choice of faith. And that choice of faith is, be angry at God. The choice of unfaith is, I'm going to ignore him. I'm angry at him. I'm out of here. Right? That's what, that's actually the form of spirituality the Bible is going to teach us. I know that sounds weird and counterintuitive. And like we're all just supposed to be submissive little worms or whatever. It's all stoicism. Just get rid of all that crap. (laughs) It's Christian stoicism. It's not biblical. Right? Now, again, is the Bible just a rant against God? Obviously not. That's stupid. Like it's, it's just the only thing the Bible is trying to teach us. Well, you're an idiot. Of course not. Uh, you know, it's trying to teach us how to love God, right? But it's also going to teach us, and this is actually a form of loving God that validates my experience, even if it doesn't. It's not again. It doesn't necessarily say God actually did curse you, but it's going to give you a whole bunch of space to say it, <laughs> right? Um, so, Bible, not written to teach us theology. The Bible is actually written to probe and re-educate what we seek in love, to help us and understand. The Bible, a lot of times, is a, it, the way the text is written is actually is a mirror to kind of, for me to realize, oh, like I understand that person right there. I know I'm supposed to like this guy over here, and that's what I'm supposed to like be. That's the good guy. But actually, that guy right there, that that makes way more sense to me. (laughs) And that's a way in which the biblical text is actually going to get inside of us 
sort of open us up to reveal to us, like, well, that's actually who I really am. And to say, you know, that is actually who I really am, and I know I need to understand why I'm actually that way. Because I do know, actually, I want to be who this person is in the story, but I'm not like that person. Why am I here and not there? How do I get from here to there? <coughs> Narratives, they're tailor-made to do that. That's why the Bible's written in the story, okay? <laughs> um, what time is it? What, time, what kind of time do we have here? 25. When did I start? Almost an hour ago. Oh gosh, I've talked way more than I wanted. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so, here, uh, it's totally up to you. Uh, we've got two options at this point. I'm not going to talk about any of this anymore. Alright? Uh, I can talk and answer questions. Or we could look at a biblical text together for just a little bit, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and then answer questions. Or yeah, do that. Yeah. 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 Alright. <laughs> yes! Okay. So, this is a biblical text. And so, what I am talking about in terms of how the Bible operates to re educate effectiveness is what I would call reading the Bible for wisdom, because that's actually the biblical category for it. But yeah, I'm just going to look at the text, see what it's doing. This is the text for Mark's Gospel. Um, I think this is the ESV. It's not some weird, like, tr- crazy translation I made up or something like that. Um, yeah. The Bible is a tool of God's sanctifying love. He remodels and give us a heart of wisdom. Again, it's about remolding the heart, understanding who we really are, exposing how we really live and the convictions we really live out of, and actually understanding those and why we live that way and remolding us to love other things. Right? So, let me give you an example of how the Bible does this kind of thing. Again, the way the Bible is going to do it, especially in narrative, is not like through the front door. Hey, be a good person. Think this. Love that. <laughs> you know, this, this stuff just pings off of us. I mean, you know, like, <laughs> you know, it's just like, that wouldn't, this would be so ineffective. Um, you know, but it's what we get all the time. Be a good person and all that crap. Um, so, uh, here's a text from Mark, Mark 5. Uh, this is a text where you have two people encounter Jesus. Uh, throughout the gospel narratives, obviously, you, know, you have kind of constant characters that run through. Jesus, disciples, Pharisees, you know, that kind of thing. And then you have these, what in English, um, English, English, they would say is a one-off. Um, I don't know if we say that in America. I can never remember what's English and American English anymore. But um, you have a, these one-off encounters. Somebody comes to meet Jesus, and they're gone. Not in the story anymore, right? Um, <clears throat> here's what you need to understand is you, when, when you're reading biblical narratives like the gospels gospel narratives are always operating at two levels the first level is this what people call the story level story level is like here's these things that happened in the past you're getting a heavily edited down version of it 
of like these two people encountered Jesus. Jesus said this, they said that, that sort of thing. And it's an interaction between them. Okay? There's a second level of the text below that, and that is Mark is talking directly to us. He's telling this story to tell us something. And in the Gospels, here's the thing that shouldn't be rocket science. It's going to be about Jesus, right? <laughs> and, but it's not going to be a set of ideas about Jesus. It's going to be, how do I connect to Jesus? And how does he connect to me? Right? So, you can, you'll, you'll see kind of how that's going to happen here. So, Jesus crossed again in the boat the other side. A great crowd gathered about him. He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Seeing him, he fell at his feet, implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. So, you're introduced to rule number one. You're introduced to a new character in a narrative. First thing you're going to do is, like, do a, what do I feel towards that person? Don't ask, is this a good person or a bad person? Ask the question of, like, do I trust them? Do you like this guy? Trust him? Who's suspicious of Jairus? He is a synagogue ruler. Ooh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> who, who trusts Jairus? Yes. 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 Why? He cares about his daughter. He cares about his daughter. What else? Courageous. Courageous. He believes Jesus can heal his daughter. Believes Jesus can heal his daughter. Fell at his feet. Honored him. Comes plainly, openly, in need. Desperate need. Those are all ways that Mark has described Jairus in a way so that you will feel sympathy for him and that he is genuine and that you will trust him. You trust him because Mark wants you to, actually. Because Mark's a really good storyteller. He's building a connection. And what that means is the person you trust, you know, again, this is something that happens totally automatically in reading narratives other than the Bible. You've just been taught a bunch of weird rules about reading the Bible. <laughs> if you're reading a novel or whatever, you would do this automatically. Mm-hmm. Right? This is why it's written in narrative. Okay? Just do what you would do with a narrative. Alright? Um, so, you trust him. That means get in his shoes. Follow this guy. Okay? Um... Verse 24, and he went with him. That's actually an important statement because that's actually Mark, one of the ways in the Gospels in which you kind of know what to do with characters is you watch what Jesus does with them. He went with him. Oh, I'm supposed to go with him. You have this narrative, you know, this guy comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Oh, that seems like a nice question. Jesus is like, why do you call me good? You're like, well, what's wrong with that guy? <laughs> I'm like, whoa, okay, something's wrong with this dude. Uh, like, it seems okay a second ago, but like, you know, you, you know, you watch what Jesus does, and that's the signal of like, this is how I'm supposed to relate to this character. This is a warning. That guy. Right? Uh, but you go with him. Okay? He goes with him. Then, Mark's going to do one of his favorite things, is... Uh, Sandwich another story in here. Uh, people actually refer to this as a Markin sandwich. <laughs> Scholars are such geeks. And so, uh, but Mark left it to put one story inside another. Builds an air of tension, uh, but it also means the two stories interpret each other. Right? So, you have a great crowd, and then you're going to have this woman. Verse 25, there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, had spent all that she had. 
uh, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus that came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I'll be made well. What do you think about her? Yeah, are you suspicious of her? Is she trying to trick Jesus? Are you kidding? Um, yeah, you're supposed to feel some level of empathy, compassion. She's had insane amounts of suffering. Um, she also has real faith in Jesus, right? Somebody in need. Real faith in Jesus. What does she really know about Jesus? Does she think Jesus is the second person of the Trinity? What are you kidding? Uh, who cares? It doesn't matter. Like this in the Gospels, faith is always partial. Like nobody has absolute faith because that's the way it's in real life. Okay, <laughs> and so like you know, she has she knows something, and she has real faith, and she has real need. Right. By the way, there's also a whole other thing going on here. That's a total like up down class division thing. Jairus, synagogue ruler, respected thing, unnamed, bleeding woman. And that bleeding makes her impure and unclean in Jewish society for 12 years. <laughs> like, that's horrific. Okay? So, anyway, she touches Jesus' garments. What happens? Immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body she was healed of her disease. Now, let me ask you this question. What does she want to happen next? What's her... What do you think she is imagining happens next? She just got healed. Sneaks away. Exactly. She puts on her invisibility cloak. Everybody just keeps walking. Um, and she goes home healed, right? That's what she wants to happen. Why do you think that? Because we want because <laughs> that's what we want to do that's right yeah good uh, she's brilliant. good at hiding she's good at hiding she comes in secret she has real faith in Jesus right she doesn't want to be known as making Jesus unclean she's, she's also in Jewish law making Jesus unclean right she's not supposed to touch anybody yeah, in the Jewish mindset clean thing unclean thing they come together both unclean never clean thing makes the unclean thing clean Never, 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 never. <laughs> like, you're, everything leans towards unclean. You know, so the pure is, like, totally rare. You know? <laughs> and so, um, so she just made Jesus unclean. So she wasn't really supposed to touch him. She's not supposed to be in this crowd. You know, there's all these different reasons. Plus, she's also somebody who, you know, you kind of have this sense of, like, she actually has this deep faith that Jesus can heal her. She doesn't think Jesus would give her the time of day, right? Uh, spoiler alert, he doesn't do anonymous healing, right? <laughs> so, uh, verse 29. Uh, and immediately the flow of drug got up. She felt in her body, she was healed of her disease. Verse 30. Then Jesus, this is hilarious, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Anything seems a little odd about that verse to you? Yeah, everything. Everything should seem weird about it. Like, who touched my garments? Does Jesus know who touches garments? Yeah. Why does he say, who touched my garments? He wants her to draw her, her, her out, right? This is like God in the Garden of Eden. Hey, where are you guys after the fall? Like he lost his keys or something, you know? <laughs> so, you know, like, he wants to talk to them. The other thing 
that is really weird in this verse is this. Jesus, perceiving that power had gone out from him. <laughs> is that the way miracles work in the Gospels? Jesus walks around like a healing power station, you know, and people bump into him and... <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, like Jesus is like, you're healed, you're healed, you can get up. Right? All of a sudden, boom, Jesus... Totally weird description. Right? The worst thing you can do with this verse is to like try and create a theology out of it. And it's like, this is how healing works, or some other stupid thing. <laughs> so, <clears throat> who touched my garments? Disciples, this is great. Verse 31, disciples, comic relief. Totally comic relief here. <laughs> His disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, who touched me? <laughs> Jesus, everybody has just touched you in the last five minutes. <laughs> You're walking through a mosh pit. Like, it was, everybody, everybody's touched you. Like, what do you mean, who touched you? You know, total, like I said, comic relief. Like, they just don't get it. Uh, Mark's gospel, worst portrayal of the, of the gospels. Like, all the... All the, no, but of disciples, yeah. You know, like it's very the, rational. huh? It's very rational. They're not stupid. They, they, they say stupid things, but they're rational things. That's right. Um, but they're, again, it's highlighting, like, they don't get it, but actually we know what's going on. Right? It's actually, in a very sly way, this is actually Mark building a bond with us. He knows, we know, exactly what Jesus is talking about. They, people in the story have no idea what's going on. Right? Uh, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. The woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Why is she afraid? What does she expect? Reprimand. Yeah. She's in trouble. She's in trouble. Getting in trouble. Reprimand. Shaming. Why? Who are you to touch me? What were you doing? Shaming in front of everybody. Right? So she's afraid. This is one really, you're going to see it, it's going to happen again, like in two verses. In Mark's gospel, there's a central dichotomy that defines what faith in Jesus is. And it's a dichotomy between fear and faith. In Mark's gospel, you believe in Jesus or you're afraid. It's not belief and unbelief. Right? The opposite of faith is fear in Mark. You're afraid. Or you believe that Jesus has power and is out for your good. And you're not afraid. But this is the thing you'll see over and over in Mark. This is is Mark's little strategy. Uh, And very typical of how he uses this dichotomy of fear and faith. But she's afraid. Right? What is Jesus going to say to her? Daughter. Term of affection. Acceptance. Your faith has made you well. Now, a lot of us in this room just had a little theological flag that went up and said, that's not right. Here's a hermeneutical principle. You don't get to just argue with Jesus, right? You know, like you, you know, Jesus, like you don't go, Jesus. No, wait a minute. Um, you know, uh, again, could you do something like insane and try and build a theology out of this? That would be stupid. Uh, but like Jesus is totally serious. Your faith made you well, right? And here's the thing that Mark actually wants you to see, and that Jesus is talking about. 
And the, the disciples are actually 100% right about everybody in this crowd touched Jesus. Only one person got healed. What was the difference? Her faith. Right? Here's what Jesus is saying to her. Again, it's not a like name it and claim it stupid. Like, let's just get rid of that idea. What Jesus is saying is something good and powerful and strong in you reached out to touch me. Your faith is strong and powerful and good. Right? And then he says, go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Which is the way of talking about there's more than physical healing that needs to happen here, right? Um, but, like, it's a straight affirmation. The acceptance, daughter. And then this powerful statement of, like, your faith is good and powerful and strong. Now, let's look back to Jairus really quickly. While he's still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So now we switch back to Jairus, and we're trying to figure out what's he thinking, what's going on inside of Jairus, right? This is one little thing you need to know about. The, the way the Bible tells stories, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a different kind of narrative grammar. Like, it tells stories, and we can basically appropriate them, but, like, the way that it tells stories is usually very, very dense and compact, um, and very, very different from modern storytelling and like modern novels. One thing that's really, really different is this. In terms of how much access do I get to people's internal world, okay, in the Bible, it's like zero. <laughs> I get none. Uh, I get tiny little hints, maybe. Like this thing, in this passage, you have the woman said, if I touch him, I'll be made well. Well, who did she say that to? Well, she said it to herself, like that was what she was thinking. But even Mark is going to say, she said it. She said, because he doesn't, fact, the Bible doesn't actually want to give us. Whereas, like, the modern novel, you have infinite access to everybody's. Some of, some novels are just people's weird internal world, <laughs> right? And you never even get out of that. Um, but here's the counterintuitive bit. It's never really going to give you direct access. The thing that the narrative is actually focused on is this question. What's going on inside of that person? What are they thinking and doing? Like, why are they doing what they're doing? What's going on? What they, why did they do that? And the Bible's going to give you what people who study narratives would say is implicit commentary. The way that it's going to tell the story is going to give you enough jumping and off points. We all, like I asked you this question, what does this woman want to happen next? You all are like, yeah, she just wants to be invisible. And, like, you know, not telling Jesus to find out about it. But how did you know that? Mark's a good storyteller. And you you immediately understood her internal world and what she would want. Biblical narratives are constantly giving you, like, little jumping off points. They're asking you to do a bunch. They're asking you to do a bunch of heavy lifting, Right? This is not a Jerry Bruckheimer movie where you know everything's going to happen in the first two minutes, okay? <laughs> like, it's, uh, you know, it's complicated. And you have to, like, figure out, what are, what are these people doing? It's not quite like a Godard film, but it's like, a, you know, what? Uh, but, you know, there's, you got to do a lot of work. <laughs> right? But it's actually giving you jumping off points. This is a classic example. What's going on inside of Jairus? It's actually the key question here. 
is Mark going to tell us? Nothing. Zip. Right? But he actually just told us something. If you look at what the what his servants say when they come, why trouble the teacher any further? It's actually Mark's way of using what they said to tell you about what Jairus is thinking. That what is going on inside of Jairus right now is I had a hope and it's gone. There was a possibility, maybe Jesus could have healed my daughter. Whatever hope I had is gone. It just evaporated. She's dead. Nothing left to do but bury her. Right? And this is what I mean by the narrative actually is going to give you jumping off points, but it is going to make you do the work. But the focus, again, the the text leaves gaps, but the gaps are not what did did Jairus have for breakfast? Who cares? Like, I mean, the gaps are not like all this weird stuff. The gap is always about, like, who is this person? That's also exercising our muscle of using our heart to discern. Right? So, uh, overhearing what they said, Jesus turns to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Again, absolute dichotomy. Fear and belief. Right? This statement always gets me. I think this is the most compassionate thing Jesus could say, and 100% 100% the hardest thing you could possibly say. And Jesus doesn't make any promises. There's just, don't be afraid, trust me. That's it. No promises about your daughter will be <laughs> fine, you know. I'll just raise her from the dead. Like, that's on the table. You know, like, uh, but Jesus is just like, look at me, trust me. Don't be afraid. Right? Then, let's, we can quickly kind of get, try and get through the rest of this. We came to the ruler of the synagogue, Jesus saw commotion, people are huge crowd, whole neighborhoods wailing. Uh, he entered the home, Jesus says this great, why are you making a commotion? The child's just asleep. And everybody laughs. Because what he just said was crazy, right? Uh, and again, Mark's focus, even though he's not going to talk about Jairus, is actually, what does Jairus think now? This guy's nuts, right? Um, what is Jairus going to do? So uh, the, he, he put the take, takes in you know, Peter, James, and John, the inner kind of trio of the disciples, goes, takes the girl by the hand, says, Talitha Kumi, Aramaic, little girl, I see you get up. Immediately the girl got up, started walking around. She's 12 years old. Like she wasn't a baby, you started playing the piano. You know, gonna, you know so uh, there's also like the 12 years old actually links to the 12 years of yes. bleeding because again these two stories are connected and actually interpret each other. Like that's Mark kind of sewing them together. Um, and they were astonished, overcome. Jesus says, "Don't tell anybody about this." Right. So really quickly, if that was even possible. Uh, here's what Mark's doing. Mark's going to tell the story. What's Mark saying to us? Mark's trying to give us an an, experience of how Jesus meets us in our faith. How Jesus responds to our faith. How he responds is in what you were constantly see in the Gospels and in, in what Jesus does. It's always these two things. Your faith is amazing and powerful and good. 
Do you have mustard seed faith? Uh, speak. You have to have that mountain to throw itself into the sea. And then, what he's going to say is this. And whatever faith you came in the door with, it needs to grow now. You need to trust me. You need to step out of the boat. You need to come toward, take another step towards me. Like there's always a place for faith to grow and grow deeper. Now here's the tension is that you need to let both of those statements be 100% true. Because when we hear the second statement, what we hear is, Jesus didn't really mean the first one. When we hear the challenge of Jesus, what we hear is, my faith isn't good enough. If I'm a better person, God's going to like me. All that kind of trash. What's the next question? Why do I think that? Why do I feel that? Why is that my automatic heart judgment? Part of spiritual formation is, is kind of it's unlocking like our belief and acceptance in the things that the gospel proclaims about God's love and grace towards us and His favor towards us. We have all like this is Calvin used to have this phrase: the human heart is a factory of idols, mm-hmm. right? He didn't mean we we're making little statues. What he meant was. Where you take some truth about God and you turn it into something that like feels reasonable to me and convenient. And 99 times out of 100, that picture that feels convenient is a distortion of God, first of all. But second of all, a God who's kind of deeply ambivalent about me. He's not quite sure about me. Right? Like, that feels reasonable. We know it's not what the Bible teaches, but it's kind of like, in my heart, I'm like, that makes total sense. <laughs> you know, like, and so, and that's where, th- this is constantly what you, you're going to see in the Gospels. It's Jesus embracing and affirming and saying, your faith is amazing and powerful and good. And I'm going to celebrate it in front of all of these people. And you need to take another step. You need to step towards me. Right? Don't let one crush the other one. Right? Like they're both actually totally true. And that's why in the Gospels, salvation is a call. Like it's total free gift and total demand of me and my life. You know what I am? That actually gives me life. And frees me from my idolatries. Right? It's those two things going on. This is exactly what Mark is doing. Like, wedding these two stories together. And he's not trying to teach us a theological doctrine. What he's trying to do is give us an experience of how it is we interact with these people. How we identify with them. And how we're like them. And how we actually... I mean, most of us, I think, are way more comfortable with Jesus saying, yeah, you need to do better next time. (laughs) Like, not many of us are totally on board with this, like, what's inside of you is good and powerful. Especially if you're a Presbyterian. 
we eat shame for breakfast. You know, like, this is kind of like, I'm a worm. Oh, you know, all that crap. <coughs> Pure idolatry in the vice, actually. Um, you know, and psychologically damaging. And not even all of them, I mean, go on and on and on. Uh, you know, but like, some, you know, and that's what we have to, this is the whole point. The story as a narrative, and my, if I kind of get into it as a narrative, I start to actually, it actually starts to reveal, like, oh, I'm good with that, and oh, I don't like that, and this person, like, I wish I was kind of like that guy, but I'm not. But I want to be. Like, it reveals who we really are. And it starts reordering things. And trying to speak truly, directly to the heart. Like, not re-educating affections. Not giving me a set of ideas. Turning into a set of like, turning it into a set of ideas and turning salvation into a commodity is infinitely easier on us than actually dealing with this mess. That's why we do it. <laughs> That's why salvation becomes a commodity. Look, you can do these three things and you get this. Like you're going to McDonald's, you know. Like, of <laughs> course, uh, I mean, like. Who doesn't want that? That's a joke. <laughs> like, you know, here, again, spoiler alert, you're never going to find that junk in the Bible, by the way. Um, but, like, you know, we're just going to turn it into something that is way easier and less, com- less complicated than something we can just, like, ding, uh, and be fine. Right? And then eat a shame sandwich. Like, that's, that's kind of how we operate. We're so weird. Um, you know, so... <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, but the Bible's actually trying to kind of gain access to directly through narratives like this, or poetry. And sometimes that poetry is joyful. Sometimes that poetry is insanely painful. Sometimes it's just morose. Like, literally, a psalm that ends with, darkness is my only friend. Seriously? <laughs> like in the Bible? Like Hoover? When's the last time you sang that in church? Uh, darkness is my only friend. You know, like, this is a, I mean, you could make a good bluegrass song out of that, but <laughs> not a good hymn. Uh, you know. So, you know, it, it, again, it's trying to gain access to something. And that's the way it's written. And that's its purpose. Right? And we are, you know, we've been kind of programmed to, like, turn hold it at a distance and turn it into a bunch of ideas and principles and that kind of stuff. Right? Make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to shut up. Questions? <laughs> Push back. Yeah? So you posed the question at the beginning that I thought was really interesting, which is that how do we use this sort of conformation to think about our growth as we can go yeah. Growth implies change, shape implies progress, or maybe at least right. movement. So what does that look like if you don't have these measurement techniques of, like, saying, I memorized this amount of scriptures and I have these degrees? What does this look like? Yeah. That's a really question. And I think it's a huge part of the I think it's a huge part of the tension that everybody experiences. Again, I'm not gonna give you an answer that you like. (laughs) 
And here's the problem, is we want the thing that is, like, the trackable and discernible. Like, I want a little cookie after running 100 yards or whatever. Like, you know, I want something that's discreet and that has a limit and that has this amount of growth. And that's why it, it's like, it's just the same as parenting books. Right? Everybody hates the ambiguity of parenting. If you've ever been a parent, you're kind of thrown into, like, I really don't know what to do, but I have to make a choice. And, yeah, my kid's going to go there for a decade because of whatever I decide. And, I'm, you know, and i got to do that a hundred times a day. Everybody's going to write a book, Seven Steps to Parenting, and you're, oh, yeah. <laughs> and the, weirdly, that book never works. But happily for the publishers, we decided the problem must be me. I just, well, I just wrote the wrong book.